Community. You are listening to Lone Star 4.5 KC and 106.0 LP Conroe and com. Securities and financial planning offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Welcome to Planning for Win, Financial Guidance in Life. This is Kevin Finkley. Thank you for joining us today. As a financial advisor, a fair amount of my time is used working with individuals and clients, helping to prepare families um, and individuals to protect, preserve, and grow wealth. And one of those things that tend to happen, a life event that can interrupt that process, is divorce. Now, this divorce can be initiated by ourselves, by our spouse, uh, or perhaps a mutual decision. And what tends to happen during divorce is we start to get help. And the help can be from our family members, um, our coworkers, people who care about us. And they're trying to help us, but but sometimes what they're doing is giving us the wrong information or incorrect information and, and frankly information that might not pertain to us. So I think it's helpful to find professionals out there to help you through this process. And we do have one of those professionals here today. His name is Ernie Martin. He's a family law attorney that has decades of experience helping guide people through divorce. So I'm glad to welcome Ernie here today. And uh, Ernie, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Well, first of all, good morning to everyone out there. My name again is Ernie Martin, and I practice family law. I practice a few other disciplines as well. They call us general civil practitioners. I work for a law firm called Courier and Martin, and yes, that Martin is me. Mm-hmm. I've been doing family law since 1996 in Texas, and I uh, eh, let's just say it's a mercurial practice. It's a mercurial discipline because family law covers so many areas, divorce being one of them. And if people wanted to reach out to contact you, how would they do that? Oh, they can reach me at uh, on our phone numbers, 281-890-7090. They can also go to our website at www.courier, that's spelled C-U-R-R-I-E-R, couriermartin.com, www.couriermartin.com. Thank you, Ernie. So w- when we talk about divorce, there's different areas of divorce we could talk about, and a lot of times people focus on property. And that's the house, that's how we divide up checking accounts, uh, any type of debt. And that's important, and and we're going to have a conversation about that later at some point. But I think one of the areas that people tend to push aside or maybe not focus on that is just as important or perhaps maybe more important are children's issues in relation to divorce. So I'm glad that we're starting with that today because I think it's really important. And, you know, Ernie, when we talk about children's issues during divorce, where would you like to start off with to uh, help people have a better understanding of what that might be? Well, let's just start at the beginning. Uh, Children's issues are, in my opinion, the most important. Uh, 
I don't think it's any coincidence that if you ever read a final decree of divorce, the first section of that divorce is devoted to the children's issues, then the final sections are devoted to property issues and other other things. Um, again, the courts take the children's issues very serious. They like to rectify those first and then move into property. That's what I like to do when I talk about divorces and what we call suits affecting parent-child relationships. You don't have to be married to have court orders regarding your children. If you're in a divorce, that divorce will include the same elements of a suit affecting a parent-child relationship. There's an acronym for that, S-A-P-C-R, and we pronounce that SAPSR. SAPSR courts, these are courts that handle the children's issues. They also handle the divorce issues. It's also important to note that in Texas, Texas has some very good laws when it comes to children's issues. They have some very good presumptions. Now, a presumption is something that the law just implies this is the way that things should be, and it would be up to the parties or the parents to dispute that presumption. So the first presumption that we make in Texas for parents is that they're good parents. We don't assume that parents are bad parents. We assume that they're good parents. And if they are good parents, they're titled joint managing conservators. That's an important aspect of uh, family law, of the children's issues. Managing conservators are immediately granted certain rights, duties, and obligations that they might not get if they were not a managing conservator. Okay. Could I ask you a question? When we talk about children, everybody has a different idea when we talk about children. So is, is there an age? I mean, what age group are we talking about when we talk about children? We're talking about one second old to 18 or has graduated from high school, whichever's later. That's the final emancipation date for children that applies to child support. There's other emancipation When I say emancipation, this is where the children are no longer subject to the court orders, to the child support rules, um, and the visitation rules as well. It gets a little bit complicated. The children actually emancipate for purposes of visitation when they're 18. So a parent may still be collecting child support, but the child can tell the other parent, I don't want to visit anymore. And it's usually not a very long period of time. It's also important to note that the emancipation dates can be extended under certain good causes, special needs children, for instance. You know, we call them adult children at that point. They're adults, but they still have needs. They still have support issues. Uh, They're unable to go out in the world and fend for themselves. So that's going to go beyond that emancipation date. And then obviously... The emancipation date can be terminated a, a little bit earlier. The emancipation can happen a little bit earlier as a result of death, marriage, enlistment in the armed forces. Those will take care of it as well. Okay, thank you. When, when we talk about uh, children, you had mentioned a while ago maybe not wanting to cooperate. You know, a lot of times we'll hear that uh, a child doesn't want to go visit mom or dad. And, you know, I just don't want to go over this weekend. I mean, what, what's the guidelines or the, or the rules that people have to consider when we're talking about children wanting to make a decision and not to go visit a parent? There are the court rules, which is the law and the order that's signed by the court. And then there's the common sense rules about it. 
I'm not going to touch on the common sense rules too much. Most of the people out there probably are well aware of those. Under the court order, though, a child must be made available for visitation with a non-custodial parent, like I said, until they are 18 years of age. Uh, That means the custodial parent is going to have to stuff them in the car, kicking and screaming, even though they're 17 years and 364 days old. And that's the bottom line. It's important to understand that visitation is a highly enforceable thing, meaning if the non-custodial parent does not allow that visitation and doesn't have good cause to disallow that visitation, the court will come down on that custodial parent in a very, very heavy way, and that's something that all parents should want to avoid. Um, You know, ultimately, again, one of the common sense things about this Parents, when they check their own differences and focus on the best interests of the kids, and clearly one of the best interests of children is that they have frequent and continuing contact with both parents, is that they should encourage the visitation process. They should make the children want to go on that visitation, not grudgingly getting into a car, oh, well, you have to go see the other parent today, and making it sound like gloom and despair and how horrible it's going to be as opposed to making it sound like it's going to be something fun and exciting, and usually it is for the children. Well, well, I'm glad you mentioned that, because a a lot of times people leave out the children during this process, and to some degree they have to, but if they're 3 or they're 17, they're still involved in a divorce, right? That's absolutely correct. Right. So, And they have their own thoughts, and they have their own feelings, and you know, usually we find through our conversations that it's best to involve the kids somewhat, but... Maybe they need to stay out of the adult out of the adult conversations, right? Absolutely. Uh, there's actually injunctions that can be put into court orders, you know, for good cause or if the parties agree, but specifically prohibiting the parties from discussing the litigation process with the children involving the kids in adult decisions. Okay. Now, listen. If a child has an activity or something that they want to do, and that's going to conflict with the other parents' visitation time. For sure, that's something that the party should discuss. Maybe if the child's old enough, they should be involved in it as well. Uh, you know, so those types of things should be taken into account. Probably what should not be taken into account is the child just doesn't want to go. They want to stay at home, talk to their friends on Skype or play video games or whatever they want to do. You know, these are types of things, again, common sense rules would say, think about is that in your best interest of your child. That makes sense. So we, we talked a little bit about the child not wanting to go see mom or dad. What do we see when maybe a parent is not involved and either is not there or doesn't want the children to come over and visit them? So how does that work? If I'm understanding you correctly, the, you're talking about the visiting parent or the non-custodial parent might be tied up and doesn't want to see their own kids? That's right. All right. Um, unfortunately. We have no tool in the toolbox for that that will force a parent to actually take possession of their children. That's one of the ironies of family law. You know, we can put a gun to a parent's head and say, you must allow this visitation, but it doesn't work in reverse. Um, Now, there can be other kinds of penalties for that. Obviously, you have your own moral and ethic dilemmas, and someday your child's going to be an adult, and 
all of a sudden when you want to be friends with your 26-year-old adult child and they don't want anything to do with you, you have to then look back and say, what did I do wrong? Oh, maybe it was all the time I didn't spend with my child when they were young. Um, but, you know, other things that the custodial parent could do if, if, if they have an absent uh, non-custodial parent, they can go back to court and seek additional child support. Reason being that the custodial parent, since they have the child more of the time, is going to spend more money. And so that can be kind of a useful tool. The other thing, and again, it, it, it makes no logical sense, but when you have an absent parent, one of the penalties that absent parent can undergo is losing their visitation time. All right, that's all we have. Uh, so again, I think what it really comes down to is that the parents who operate, that the parents are on the same page with visitation and how they're raising their children and that they get their kids interested in the visitation, perhaps through activities or some other thing. So, so parents can have their differences, and we understand that, but it's beneficial to everybody to still consider the children and still try to be a family unit and go through the divorce and get that done, but, but still try to remain a family unit and be friends and, and take care of each other. Yeah, we call it co-parenting. They actually have a word for it, go okay. figure. And one thing I'd like to touch on, uh, at, earlier I addressed this term, this title, joint managing conservators. I think it's fairly important to understand what that means. <clears throat> and you'll be surprised the number of family law attorneys that don't spend much time educating their clients in this particular area, I tend to spend too much time educating my clients in a particular area. They get bored with me. But there's a section of the Texas Family Code, that's the rule book that controls all the family relations, and it's the Joint Managing Conservator Statute. It can be found at Texas Family Code, section 153.132. This section of the code outlines nine managing conservator rights. These are decision-making rights to make educational decisions, significant legal decisions, financial decisions, certain medical decisions, so on and so forth. They're important rights. The Supreme Court of Texas, their opinion is that good parents, again, joint managing conservators, should share in these rights. Just because they're going their separate ways, either through divorce or a breakup, does not mean that they're divorcing their children. So again, to keep both parents actively engaged, if both parents share in the right to make educational decisions, that means they're going to have to talk. They're going to have to talk, discuss, hopefully reach agreements, and speak with one voice, just the same as they would if they're married in most cases. So they still need to be parents. That's right. Yeah. So we were talking about the families and the visitation, and so part of that family could be grandparents. Do grandparents have certain rights in this process or, um, you know, is their relationship normal during this process or can people keep people from seeing grandparents or can grandparents intervene in the process to make sure that, that they still see their grandchildren during this process? As a general rule, grandparents have no rights with their grandchildren. Now, their ability to see their grandchildren flows through the adult child or the parents of the children. So when that adult child, the parent, has what we call possession and access, that's the same thing as visitation, then the grandparents would have time with their grandchildren 
during that that period. Uh, some people think, well, that's not fair to the grandparents because maybe their adult child doesn't like them anymore and is excluding them from seeing their grandchildren. And that's just the way it is. I have handled a few of these types of cases, and I have had people come in wanting to see their grandchildren when their parents wanted nothing to do with them. And I've had to give them the bad news that they don't have those rights. Now, I say that as a general rule. There's a couple things to keep in mind. If the grandparents had actual care, custody, and control of the grandchildren for a period of at least six months, they now have standing with the court. Standing means they have a right to intervene. They have a right to petition the court for conservatorship, right? non-parent managing conservatorship. This is kind of getting into some deep weeds, but that's one way that the grandparents can establish rights is just through time and actual care, custody, and control. The other way that grandparents have rights is under the grandparents' rights statute. Under that statute, they can seek possession and access with their grandchildren, but only if their own adult child, only if that parent has either died, has otherwise had their parental rights terminated, or is incarcerated. Well, I've noticed a few things while sitting here and listening to you. So um, the, these facts and interpretations are just rolling off your tongue. But folks like myself and the listening public, this is not their normal routine and they're not familiar with it. So it's just all that more important that they find the right professional to work with. Because going back to earlier, they talk to their neighbor, they talk to someone else who had a divorce, and, and, and things sometimes aren't explained in the detail that you're explaining them. And that's why they have to have the right person in front of you, in front of them. So, um, and this is just one aspect that we're just barely scratching the surface on visitation, but yet it's complex, correct? Very complex. Everything in the family code is complex. Uh, that's one of the reasons I said that family law can be so mercurial is that there is just twists and turns in every chapter. I recently uh, sat down with a couple colleagues of mine. We're, we're all three involved in a case. Um, listen, I'm the dumbest one of the pack in this bunch. The two other attorneys are some of the best attorneys around. They're very, very good. They're very knowledgeable people. So we have this case going on. We sat down in this mediation with a very good mediator and a very good amicus attorney. We'll talk a little bit more about what an amicus attorney is later. And all of a sudden, one of the attorneys springs a statute on the other attorney that nobody had ever even heard of. It has to be a statute that was probably written for one case, and it just sat there. But one of the attorneys found it, and there it is, gotcha. And it's just it's made the case take a whole different turn. So listen, when it comes to family law, expert advice is not only important, it's necessary. It's necessary. When you were speaking earlier, Kevin, about going and seeking a professional as opposed to getting advice from friends, family, TV, internet, whatever the case may be, it always makes me smile because I think of when I go to my physician mm -hmm. and I tell my physician, hey, I read on the internet or my neighbor told me or whatever the case may be, and the expression's always the same. We've all seen it from our sure, doctors. Sure. The eyes roll and they just go yeah. quit reading the internet, yeah. right? Well, same thing with family law. There's, there's good information out there on the Internet. There's very good information out there on the Internet. In fact, 
the, the standard visitation order. You can just dial that up on the internet. There it is in all of its glory. Understanding it, interpreting it, understanding how the courts use it, that's completely different. And you can get wildly different opinions out there in the media. Well, if I understand what you're saying, so you need a set of legal eyes and some legal training to look at it because words mean different things to different people and they're interpreted differently. So in a layman's term, it means something very different to me. But yet when you look at it, it's like nobody doesn't mean that. And that's that's why we're visiting. So That's okay. exactly right. Let me give you an example of that. And we're going to talk about property later on. But, you know, a lot of people in Texas, when they think of divorce and they think of how the court divides property, they immediately assume 50-50. And the statute says that the court shall make a just and right division of the community property so as to equalize the parties. Now, how many listeners out there heard equalize and think 50-50? Of course. We hear that all the time, don't we? 50-50 is equal. No. Not always. Mm -hmm. And that's the law. That's the law. Not always the case. Always subject to interpretation. Always subject to, in this case, a judge's opinion. Okay. Well, no, thank you for pointing that out because we hear that quite frequently and you hear it more than I do. So we talked a little bit about visitation. So what's another important consideration for children during divorce and children's issues? Well, you know, a huge one, obviously, is child support. Right. Uh, that's, that's one that we frequently have fights over. Uh, it's one that frequently gives rise to bigger fights. Uh, you get a person who for whatever reason, feels like they shouldn't have to just pay the other person, the other parent, uh, child support. So rather than sitting down and trying to make an agreement on a reasonable amount of child support, they'll engage in a custody battle. Texas, basically, the bottom line is the custodial parent is going to receive child support from the non-custodial parent. Now, I say that with a big asterisk because there's ways around that, but that's the general premise. I Ironically, child support is one of the areas where we should have the fewest disagreements because we have a formula. And with that formula, when we have a straight-up employed person, we know what they make. We run that gross uh, monthly wage through our formula and spits out a number, and we multiply that times a factor, and there's the child support. And it's really, really hard to come up with different answers on that one. Yet, we will fight over it. So when we talk about child support, so uh, we're in Texas, but a lot of people move to Texas, obviously, because we're a growing state. Is there a difference in child support in Texas versus other states? Wildly. Okay. Wildly. Now, I'm no expert in any other state's laws on child support or any other laws, really, for that matter. Uh, But I have seen formulas from other states that take into account both parties' incomes, they take into account expenses that the parties have, they wash that through their own formula, and they, it spits out this magical number. In Texas, child support is determined by the obligor, or the non-custodial parent's wages, and only the non-custodial parent's wages. The, the custodial parent can be flat broke, have nothing, or can be a billionaire. It doesn't alter what the non-custodial parent would be required to pay under our child support guidelines. So what's important for us to know and understand the public is if we reside in Texas, we go by Texas guidelines, and it doesn't matter if we were just recently in Florida or California or New Mexico, we have to adhere to the guidelines in this state, correct? Kind of. Kind of. If you get your court order in this state, 
understand that if you have no court orders, say, for instance, you move from Florida to Texas and immediately divorce ensues. Now, this gets into some really tall weeds here, but you first must establish jurisdiction in Texas. That usually takes six months. Once that six months residency requirement is met, then the Texas courts have jurisdictions, jurisdiction over the children and they can issue orders. Until that time, Florida would still retain that jurisdiction. If a, if a, a parent moves to Texas with an existing order from a, a different state, for instance, Florida, they would still follow that order. The quote-unquote Sapser court, remember that term? We talked about the suit affecting the parent-child relationship. Courts, once they issue orders regarding children, retain exclusive jurisdiction over those children, also referred to as a Sapser court. Until that jurisdiction is changed, their orders are to be followed. Now, parents who move to Texas from a different state with existing orders can get those orders modified in Texas. That's going to get into a lot of details that we don't want to bore the readers with or the listeners with. So I'm, I'm following along, and so it sounds complicated, it sounds involved, and it depends on the couple. So are there advantages of when a, an individual comes to you who's considering divorce, is there an advantage if one spouse is recently moved or maybe living in another state for the spouse that's in front of you to uh, start to proceed with divorce first themselves? It, yes and no. Uh, for sure, the laws with divorce are going to differ between state to state. How, how vastly they differ, you know, again, just depends on the state. And I'm not overly familiar with any other state's laws to say, you know, okay, stay away from Oklahoma or anything like that, although that's probably good advice to begin with. Um, but it is important to understand that the jurisdiction is going to be where the children reside, not where a parent resides. So in other words, uh, mom and dad are breaking up. They live in Florida. Dad decides to move to Texas. Dad tries to file for divorce in Texas, even though the children stayed in Florida. Dad has no jurisdiction here. Not for that, not for divorce, okay? Now, I say that, you know, some kind of squirrely things can happen where you have split jurisdiction where, you know, maybe Texas invokes its jurisdiction here for property, but yet the children issues are handled through Florida. That can happen. I've never had to do that, but I have seen cases where that happens, and that gets very complex. Well, I think if it was me going through a divorce, then I don't want to wait until the other spouse makes all the decisions. I'm going to want to come see you and explain the situation and get advice so that we're not reacting. Would that be a good suggestion? It's, hey, listen, there's people who, that, I think that's one of these myths. There's people out there who think that they have to file first, that if they file first, they have some sort of advantage over the other spouse. Now, you have certain limited advantages. Okay. In other words, you know, the divorce is coming. The other spouse might not. It just depends. Um, you have the opportunity to establish immediate hearings, what we call temporary orders hearing. Chances are you're going to get to pick the date of that, but chances are once the other party served and they make an appearance, they can go in and try to reset that date. I have never really found where, 
filing for divorce or a SAPSER first is always advantageous. There could be certain minor advantages to doing it, but, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things and something I'd like to talk about later on, my opinion is as long as it's safe, that both parties are aware that this proceeding is going to happen, that both parties work on these proceedings. So that's another example of what we think is reality and it's just not. That's so, right. Okay. That's All exactly right. right. Well, uh, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, we'll talk about children's issues during divorce with Ernie Martin. Hey guys, this is Connor. This is Dick. This is Chris. And we're with the Ticket Stub Podcast every Thursday live at noon on 104.5 and 106.1 FM in the Conroe area. Also, anytime at IRLoneStar.com. You go to IRLoneStar.com backslash TTS. You can find all of our social media. And don't forget, we give away two tickets to the Grand Theater on every show. If you like movies and you like complaining or celebrating anything that has to do with the silver screen, check out the Ticket Stub Podcast and join us every Thursday at noon o'clock on Lone Star Community Radio. Thank you. We're back. This is Planning for Win, Financial Guidance in Life. I'm Kevin Pinkley, and we're continuing with Ernie Martin talking about children's divorce issues uh, as it pertains to family law. And we've talked a little bit about um, custody. and Well, no, we're going to talk about custody now, so let's, let's continue. We kind of have moved around the scale here, and I think for a lot of people out there, custody is a huge concern, is a primary concern. Uh, what does custody mean? How do they get custody? How do they fight for custody, as it were? Let's talk about what custody means in this state. And I'll preface that by saying, in my opinion, the legislature of Texas, who, writes, who wrote the, the Texas Family Code, has done a wonderful job of trying to deminimize what custody means. I think that the legislature has taken to heart that custody battles are inherently destructive. They're inherently expensive. We can see parents spend their kids' college tuition fighting over custody. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to fight for custody? According to the legislature, you know, you look at the way they wrote the rules, I'd say they think no. The Joint managing conservatorship, under that statute, the 153132 statute, the first right that is spelled out there is the right to establish the primary residence of the child or children. That's it. That's custody. I didn't say custody when I read that sentence, and the legislature left that word out on purpose. Okay, It's just the right to establish a residence, the primary residence of the children, meaning they're going to have a secondary residence. They're going to have two houses, not just one. Why do we even have it then, people ask? Well, for schools. When you're going to public school, you go to school where you live, where it's zoned from where you live. And if you have two parents in two different school zones, you have one parent enrolling a child in school A and the other parent enrolls a child in school B. That's a problem. That's a problem. 
So they have somebody has to have this exclusive right to determine the primary residency of the children. Now, that right, because you know, obviously some people listening might think, well, that primary residence could be in California or New York or someplace a long ways away. And the, the legislature, again, was quick to react on that one. And they, over time, it took them a while to figure it out. But in time, they've developed this domicile restriction that's placed on the children, meaning the parent who has the exclusive right to determine the primary residence of the children is going to be limited to a certain geographical location. Now, in Harris County, the standard area that gets used is Harris County and any county that touches Harris County contiguous counties. It's a big enough area for the parents to kind of spread out and get out of each other's hair, yet it's a close enough area that will allow visitation to be frequent and continuing, and that is the public policy of the state of Texas, frequent and continuing contact between parents and children. So people ask, why would I fight a custody battle over that? And I've asked that question many, many times over the years. Why would you fight this custody battle? Well, attorneys are going to encourage you to do it. Attorneys want you to do it because that's one way that attorneys, family law attorneys, can make a ton of money. It's very difficult litigation. It's very expensive litigation. It's going to involve outside parties such as this amicus attorney. An amicus attorney is an attorney that's appointed by the court that more or less represents the children's best interests. It's the eyes and the ears of the court, and they bill just like an attorney. And the parents get to pay now for three attorneys instead of just two. I read once upon a time, and it's been many years since I've read this, so the numbers probably changed, but the average price of a custody battle in Texas is $40,000 per party. So, you know, I'll agree. When people hear the term custody, it means different things to different people. But from what I'm hearing, I mean, the key emphasis, there's still two parents and the term custody just basically means where that child is going to reside as the primary residence. That's exactly right. Okay. Remember, we talked about the joint managing conservator rights. And these joint managing conservator rights, again, the public policy of the state. And when I say public policy, what I mean is this is what the state prefers. This is what the, the state feels is in the children's best interest. The public policy of the state is that the parents share in as many decision-making rights as is possible. So let's just say you have a situation where the parents get along well enough that they can co-parent and that they agree that they can share in any of these decision-making rights together. There will be two that the court likes to see exclusive. The first is that primary residence. That should be exclusive to one party or the other. The second one is the exclusive right to receive child support. The other seven rights, again, can be awarded to parent A subject to the agreement with parent B, to parent B subject to the agreement with parent A. Again, co-parenting, talking, making decisions together. The other thing that causes parents concern and one of the reasons that can motivate a parent to fight a custody battle is the great misconception of time with the children. I think there was a time long before I practiced in Texas where a parent, a visiting parent, might get 20, 25% of a child's time over a calendar year under a visitation order and no decision-making rights. Now, in that kind of world, then, yeah, I think custody becomes very much an issue. 
right? You've been stripped of time with your children. You've been stripped of rights with your children. Again, the custodial parent would hold all the cards and, and be able to basically tell you to butt out. That changed. That changed with our standard visitation order in Texas. Again, a wonderful creation by the, the Texas legislature that if followed under the basic visitation order, the visiting parent would have the children about 40% of the child's time over a calendar year. The standard possession order has what we call elections, what we call an expanded visitation order, and that's the visiting parent's choice. If they elect to take the expanded visitation order, they would then have the children approximately 45% of the children's time over a calendar year. 45-55 is very close to 50-50, and the legislature called it a day, and rightfully so. It's a very good order. So, again, that's an example that, let's say I'm talking to my aunt, and she's explaining what child custody was like decades ago, and that in some ways has no bearing on what we're talking about today. It's a very different situation. And also what I'm hearing is, so when couples go through a divorce, obviously mom and dad have some differences, and those are going to get resolved to some degree. But maybe this isn't one of those issues that they need to spend all their time and effort on arguing about there there'll be plenty other things maybe later that they disagree on and need to be worked out but maybe this is one of those things that it's pretty easy and like you said we're talking about a few percentages uh on you know the time that they're spending at mom and dad's house so maybe we shouldn't spend all our time and effort on this when it sounds like kind of it's a no-brainer if we just kind of leave it alone and agree that the children are going to spend time at each one of our houses and uh, we're going to try to keep things as normal as it could be for the kids, and let's move on to something maybe more important um, and not fight over this word custody and what it means and what my aunts may be telling me. That, that's exactly right. Now, again, sometimes it's very, very difficult to convince people sure. that the, the custody thing is watered down. There are people that will, you can explain all of these things to them, and they're still of the opinion it doesn't matter, i got to have custody. Uh, and if that's the case, that's the case. Uh, I think, though, it's important that the listeners out there understand all the options. And one of the options is don't fight a custody battle. Uh, again, we've talked about sharing parental rights. We've talked about time with the children. It's approximately equal. Let's talk about how child support factors into this. If a parent makes a normal income, and again, we're probably talking anywhere from sixty to, say, $100,000 a year, that's going to wash through the code. That's going to spit out a number of child support. That number is going to be about half of what the children need. So everything that's not covered by child support, the custodial parent's going to have to pay for. In other words, both parents are going to have to kick in. Both parents are going to have to spend some money on their kids here. When I started out in this business, daycare was about $400 per month per child. It's about 800 and some dollars per month for just a basic no-frills daycare. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. So the first thing was that it's important that both parents are going to be participating in the financial support of the children. Just the language that we're using is a little different. And then so when you mentioned the daycare, so we're wrapped up in this divorce. There's all kinds of things going on. Maybe we're not our normal selves. And a lot of times we forget 
that, hey, there's this daycare issue out there, and it's expensive, and it's ongoing, and if there's one child or three or four, it's not going to go away and resolve itself in a year or two. We're going to have to deal with many, many years of that, right? That's correct. That's absolutely correct. And again, sometimes custody, getting custody is a, uh, oh, not such a great reward. Uh, if you have a minimum wage earner, the non-custodial parent is a minimum wage earner. For one child, they're going to pay approximately $225 per month in child support. The custodial parent's on the hook for everything else. So congratulations, you're a custodial parent. That means you're going to be spending a lot more money. Now, the opposite is true. If with child support in Texas is capped, the formula is capped. I believe it's approximately your first $142,000 in gross annual income is all that child support gets applied to. One child would result in $1,710 per month. Well, okay. <laughs> With that kind of pay, most custodial parents aren't really kicking in. Um, so it just depends on where everybody falls on the scale. So you take the average folks. And again, everybody's kicking in financially. Everybody has approximately the same amount of time with the children. Everybody can have the same parental rights. Um, the last element, big element of children's issues is health insurance. Now it's health and dental insurance in Texas. The non-custodial parent either provides that policy of health and dental insurance or reimburses the custodial parent if they're carrying the policy. Um, so again, these are these are expenses that can consume child support very quickly. Well, Ernie, you know we we've covered a lot today, and we can certainly have you come back another time just to talk about children's issues. But we're going to talk about other property issues and so forth. But and and it's been very helpful today because every time I listen, I learn something new. So if people wanted to contact you to get a hold of you, how would they go about doing that? Again, my phone number is two eight one. Eight nine zero seven zero nine zero. That's Courier and Martin. Our website is www.courier, C U R R I E R, Martin.com. Please get in touch with this. I'd be happy to speak to anybody. If you mention this broadcast, we'll just chat and there'll be no charge for a short consultation. Well, thank you, Ernie. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening for uh, Planning for Win Financial Guidance in Life. Uh, you can join us next month. Uh, it's the last Tuesday of the month at 11 a.m. And you can certainly check us out online at Lone Star Community Radio. Thank you very much. Securities and financial planning offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor. Member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing.